In John chapter 12, we'll be looking at the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I read an article recently as we're getting our hearts prepared for this text about COVID-19 and the current health climate and what the future may hold in the aftermath of all that's, that's happening currently. And, and all of it was from a, a biblical perspective, which was really great and encouraging for me. And the following statement was made, and it kind of got me thinking about Palm Sunday in this way. The statement was, some churches that aim primarily for spiritual and emotional uplift may raise the tide of immediate post-quarantine excitement. Far more spiritual fruit will be born, however, in communities that directly address serious questions of life and death. Communities that seriously address the questions of life and death. And, and I think that the time of, of the year that this has come about is no coincidence, obviously, because God knew this was going to happen. But I think this is a providential season for us to be facing of what we currently are, because as we enter our observance of Holy Week, with today being Palm Sunday, we're going to be focusing on death and life with a very focused view in this season. And it's here as we prepare to remember the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem as king, as we remember his crucifixion and death on Friday, and as we celebrate his resurrection next Sunday, that we're given a blessed opportunity to observe, reflect, and meditate on Jesus. And I talked about this in my devotional in the midweek, that meditating on Jesus is really important for us, making a focused and concentrated effort on thinking about Christ and thinking about who he is, thinking about what he's done for us. We want that spiritual fruit that the writer of the article that I read is talking about to be born from us because we're facing the reality of our time, not, not trying to pretend like it's not happening. We're facing the reality of the things that we're in and we're, we have answers. We're finding answers because of Jesus. And so if we truly desire to understand all that pertains to life and death, we start with Christ. We start with Jesus. We start by looking at him. And as he testified of himself uh, to John the Apostle in Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18, the second half of verse 17, he says, don't be afraid, Jesus speaking, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys. Jesus said in John 14, 6, we quote this often, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and we, we're like, yeah, that's right. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. But I think that oftentimes we forget he is the key holder. Jesus is the key holder to death as well. And Jesus, who holds the keys to death and hell, was a man who understood what it was like to face death and grief and suffering. And he's the one who overcame it all. Not only did Jesus face the kind of suffering and issues that we, that we suffer and that we face, but he also overcame every bit of it. Think about what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He experienced all we did in this life. Think about this. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. There's nothing that you're facing that Jesus didn't face in one way, shape, or form, and Jesus didn't sin in any of it. And that's why we look to it. Especially when we're going through times right now, we're like, I don't even know what a right response would be. We look to Jesus. Jesus will teach us how to handle these times. And because he can sympathize with us, we know that he bears a true witness when he says in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. 
You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Jesus did all that he did for us. And he says this, I, he's talking to the disciples in the upper room in John chapter 16. He's in the middle of the upper room discourse. And, and he says this, I've told you these things, all of these things that are going to happen. The fact that I have to leave and that I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He says, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. Jesus doesn't remove us from trials to give us peace. Jesus gives us peace in the trial. He gives us peace in the suffering, in the thing that we're going through. And indeed, those who are in Christ can have peace in the midst of all of the things that our world is contemplating right now. Life, death, provision, change, you know, future. A lot of us are wondering what the future is going to look like. You know what? I'm going to say this. It's going to be different. And I'll say this as well. That's okay. It's okay if things are different because Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still in control. It doesn't matter how different things are. We serve the Lord and he gives us peace in the midst of the suffering. We can be courageous because he overcame the world. So in the matter of handling serious questions about life and death, we start with Christ. We start by looking at him because not only do we want to see how he handled these issues, we want to see how he's going to power us through them. How he's going to empower us in the midst of them and give us peace in the midst of them. It all began with Jesus. Everything did. And it's all going to end with him. Our view of Palm Sunday in scripture this morning will come here from John chapter 12. And we're going to pick up in verse 9. And the reason why I chose this text is because in John's gospel, the sign that Jesus worked prior to this happened in chapter 11. And many of us know what that sign was. It was the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And this fed into the reaction of the crowd as Jesus entered Jerusalem. So much of what we see happen on Palm Sunday is still a a reaction that's happening because of the raising of a man from the dead. Because you'll remember this, Jesus delayed going to Bethany. Jesus was out by the Jordan. He was out there doing ministry. And they told him Lazarus is really sick. And Jesus delayed to come back until Lazarus was dead. And indeed, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Jesus came back. He waited purposefully because his intention from the beginning was to raise Lazarus from the dead. To bring him back. To show that he is the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus did this for Lazarus in chapter 11. You can read about that. Um, another time, but that's kind of the preceding thing that's happening. And there was one more thing that happened at the beginning of chapter 12 is Mary, who obviously as being the sister of Lazarus, uh, blesses Jesus there at Bethany by anointing him. And that's a beautiful picture of humility and devotion to Christ, doing it to prepare him for his burial, which that won't happen as it should. We find out later. He now prepares to enter Jerusalem. But before we get to Palm Sunday Road, something really interesting happens. And I think that we would be uh, missing something to not read from verse 9. So we'll begin in John chapter 12, verse 9. I'm reading from the CSB version. There's lots of great versions out there just to know if you ever want to download the app, the the Christian Standard Bible is the version that I'm reading from from if you want to join us uh, in that. But any version that you have, you know, that's solid biblically, I encourage you to read. um, That's solid text and solid translation. Um, right here, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, we read this. We'll read through verse 11 here at the opening. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also. 
because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't really see, um, it's crazy to see anything that in our time that, that compares to this kind of hostility towards a man who was dead and is now alive. We don't really have a lot to compare that to, I don't think, in our culture. But it's interesting to me that there's so much hostility towards us until you really start to understand the type of hostility that the chief priests and the Pharisees have towards Christ, towards Jesus. Um, they want to kill a man, Jesus, for bringing someone back from the dead, and they're not just satisfied with that. The response of the chief priests is not only to plot the death of Jesus, but to find a way to re-kill Lazarus. And Lazarus was already dead. Can this guy catch a break? I mean, but like he, he comes out, he's alive now. And now the, the Pharisees, the chief priests are like, we got to re-kill this guy because he's such a problem for us. Think of the stark contrast as you just kind of think about that mindset and, and that response to the power of Christ and what he's doing. I want you to think about this. Think of the stark contrast compared to someone like John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to mind for me because I was, I was thinking about one of the greatest examples of somebody's reaction or response to not only who Jesus is, but to what he was doing. I want you to think about this. People were deserting the religious leaders because of Lazarus and following Jesus. But the same thing happened to John. The same thing happened to John the Baptist. And here's how he responded. If you, re if you want to read this, it's in John chapter 3, verses 25 through 30. It says this, that a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Think, think chapter 12, verse 11. Everyone's going to him. Jesus is drawing people to himself and they're leaving John the Baptist. They're leaving the chief priests. They're leaving the Pharisees and they're coming to Jesus. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees were like, we need to kill him. But how does John respond? Look at verse 27. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it was given, it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. And we know verse 30, don't we? He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. As the people came and saw the sign of the Messiah, which was Lazarus raised from the dead, they believed in Jesus. And this robbed the Pharisees of their followers and it wounded their pride. I want to warn you, there is a temptation for many of us, even amongst the church, that when God is blessing someone and God is doing a work over here, we can start getting jealous of what God's doing. We can start getting upset about what God's doing and we start turning ourselves against him even though it's God that's doing this new work and we want this for ourselves. We need to recognize pharisaical pride. In that moment, we're trying to latch on and stop people from doing something that God has called them to do. That's pharisaical pride. And we need to let the Lord work and be those who say, listen, I'm just here to see Jesus increase. I'm here to see the kingdom of Christ increase. That's all I care about. That is a situation that we come to when we are humble in heart. And it's something that I pray for often for 
our church and for myself to continue to remain there that we are not people keepers we are people processors and in that idea this is this is what i mean by that we are those who bless and raise up and strengthen the people that are in our fellowships and when they move on we bless them as they go we bless them into the next thing that the lord's calling them to we aren't about them being about us and being connected to us they are connected to us we are connected by spirit in christ but when people need to go and do a new work for the Lord, we need to send them out to do that and not be those who are grabbing onto them because we're attached to the, to the attention or we're attached to the people. We're relying on Christ. We are the body, but we don't need people to stay with us forever to basically boost our ego. That's not something that John the Baptist needed. What John the Baptist wanted was Jesus to increase. And that's what we need to be about. He must increase and I must decrease. And so the Pharisees were shown here, we, sh we were shown their heart, really, in, in the, the, the situation with Lazarus in John 12, because Lazarus is this amazing testimony of who Christ is and what he can do. And they should be celebrating that like John the Baptist did. He celebrated because he recognized that he wasn't, he wasn't the groom, he was the best man. He recognized that he was the one there celebrating what Jesus was doing. It wasn't about him. Pride wounded can be dangerous and it has to be surrendered to the Lord. John chapter 11, verse 47 makes it really clear, just as a side note for this, that the signs Jesus had done were irrefutable. Even the chief priests and scribes didn't deny them. You see that in John eleven forty-seven. 47. They're like, we can't argue that this guy is doing incredible things, but they refuse to put their trust in Jesus. They refuse to put their belief in him. And that not only leads them to plot the death of Christ, but now Lazarus is in their crosshairs as well. And this is a really interesting point. And I really think that we have to grab hold of this in the text before we move forward. Because it wouldn't be enough for them. And it wouldn't satisfy them to just kill Jesus. Because the evidence of his power is too clearly visible in the risen Lazarus. Church, I hope that we're catching the correlation here. If people want to do harm to Christ, they're going to have to do it to Lazarus as well because it's too evident that the power of God is upon him. I can't make this point emphatic enough. We want to be guilty of that kind of association. We want to be guilty of the kind of association with Jesus that basically states this. If you're going to harm Jesus, you're going to have to harm us. You're going to have to because his work in our lives is too evident. Let the workmanship of the Lord be so evident on us that if people wish to do him harm, they have to include us. They have to do it to us as well because we are living and breathing evidence that Jesus can take those who were dead and bring them back to life. And if you want to amen, high five someone in your living room, you certainly can do that right now. But that is the absolute truth. There's a couple high fives. Good. That's absolute truth. We are living, breathing evidence that Jesus can bring the dead back to life. And if people are going to try and harm Christ, then they're going to have to harm us. Because we want to be guilty of that kind of association. We want the power of God to be so evident on us that that's where we are. And Spurgeon said this so well. When men hate Christ, they also hate those whom he has blessed. And will go to any lengths in seeking to silence their testimony. That's what we want. That's what we're aiming for. Lazarus is right where the Lord wanted him. 
And that put him in the crosshairs. That put him in danger. That put him in a compromised situation. And it's right where the Lord wanted him. Now, the reason that's so important is because so much of what we see happen on Palm Sunday, so much of what we see happen as Jesus enters Jerusalem is connected when regarding the crowds of people to what Jesus has just done for Lazarus. Uh, you, we could call it the seventh sign of John. In, in God, John's gospel in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus has really made a big mark on the community. And so people are coming to Bethany to see Lazarus and they're becoming really aware this guy's bringing dead people back to life. The, the evidence of the miracle is so irrefutable that they can't, the chief priests and the scribes aren't saying anything against it. They're like, no, listen, we, we, we recognize this actually happened. They can't even lie their way around it at this point. Yet their animosity and their hatred for Jesus came to the surface because of it. And so recognize that the people are in this situation, are in this condition where they're very aware of the resurrection power of Christ in the, in the life of Lazarus. And that as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, this is going to affect the mindset of the people. It really explains what we see happen as Jesus enters. Now let's take a look at this, beginning in verse 12. So this is John 12, 12. We'll read down through verse 15. The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Josephus, who many of you know is... Uh, uh, an often quoted Jewish historian. He tells us that one year a census was taken of the number of lambs slain for Passover. That figure was 256,500. So in one year they took a census, 256,500 lambs were slain for Passover. Now this is the beginning of Passover week in Jerusalem. And so in other words, with numbers that large, lambs were driven up to Jerusalem throughout the entire day, coming into town for the Passover. Consequently, and I agree with this, whenever Jesus entered the city, he must have done so surrounded by lambs. Surrounded by lambs that were being driven to Jerusalem. How interesting would this have been to see? And for those of you who have been to Israel, you know exactly where this is. They have a good idea where the Palm Sunday Road is. How interesting would this have been for Jesus to descend down from the Mount of Olives on the Palm Sunday road with lambs all around him, being himself the Lamb of God, being himself the greatest lamb that was going to the slaughter. I can't help but think of John the Baptist and his declaration of Jesus here in John's gospel in, verse 20, in chapter 1, verse 29, where he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were shouting, Hosanna, save now. It makes me wonder how much more appropriate it would have been to shout, behold the Lamb of God, amidst all the other lambs that were going to the slaughter. Of all the lambs that were driven to Jerusalem to be sacrificed this Passover, he was the Lamb of God, led by the Holy Spirit to be our atoning sacrifice. As we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, now if you, if you understand the sacrificial system, and what they would be doing sacrifices for. Hebrews 10, 12 verses, um, 10, verses 12 through 14, 
pertains to this. But this man, after offering, speaking of Jesus, one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he was he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Jesus was about to make the one offering that had to be made for all time. This moment was so big that Daniel even prophesied the actual day that he would ride in and fulfill this prophecy. This was the moment. What lay ahead of him in the coming days was abuse and slaughter. And yet what a scene this must have been to see as the people shout, save now, Hosanna. For here our Savior is actually praised for who he is, yet it's his crucifixion that he's going towards. It's his brutal death and beatings that he's going towards. They take palm branches. Notice this in the text. They take palm branches and they go out to meet him. They keep shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Dating back to the Maccabees, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Uh, This was a symbol for them. The crowd is looking for a political leader. They're looking for a national leader. They're looking for someone to come and free them from Rome. They're looking for Jesus to be the political leadership that they're, that they're desiring. They're looking for him to be the kind of nationalist leader that they've seen in their history. And so they're praising him with these palm branches, with things that date all the way back to the Maccabean revolt. The problem is they're not looking for a spiritual savior. They're not looking for the Messiah to come and die on the cross for their sins. They're not looking for the atoning sacrifice. They're looking for save now. This circumstance, my physical circumstance, if we could only understand, Jesus doesn't reveal himself to us as what we wish him to be. Jesus reveals himself to us as he is, because that's what we need most. You do not need Jesus to be what you want in the flesh. You don't need Jesus to be uh, what you desire uh, for your own personal circumstances. You need Jesus to be who he is. And you need Jesus to show up to do what he desires to do. This lesson is so important for us, church. Maybe how we pray just as a thought, as we look at the situation and how badly the people misunderstand. Could it be possible that we're misunderstanding what the Lord's doing right now? Could it be possible that we are crying out to the Lord to be what we want and not what we need? Could it be that we're actually asking Jesus to step out of who he's here to be and to do what he has come to do rather than simply asking the Lord, give me wisdom to know what you desire to do. And and for lack of a better way of saying it, could you get me on board with that? Like, Lord, could you just get me on track with what you're doing? Could you just just get me on your train? You know, like like so many times I'm trying to get him to go to the opposite direction. And I don't want us to think that we always have the answers. We have his word. He's given us so much, but but in our in our situations that we experience, right now maybe, we just don't understand what's going on. And are we trying to get Jesus to change who he is for our situation? Or are we trying to get on board with what he's doing right now? With what he wants to do? With what his desire is? That's what we need. And as the crowd shouts, Hosanna, save now. They're reciting a messianic song. 
Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. And they're saying out loud, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, but he's not the king they're looking for. And verse 14 says this, Jesus found a young donkey. He sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And these details are so important because he's fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling prophecy of what the Messiah will do. And we know from the other gospels that Jesus arranged for this donkey to be ready ahead of time. He had already made arrangements for this donkey to be there for him. This reveals two really powerful things. One, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which is quoted here in verse 15. But also, he was purposefully revealing humility and meekness. He's riding on a donkey's colt. Now, I, you, you may just look at that and be like, oh, must be cultural. You know, for those of you who are reading King James right now, you're reading a swear word. I apologize. But, you know, it, he's, he's riding on a donkey's colt. And, and, and here's the thing. He's revealing humility and meekness. Just go right by that comment. He's, he's, he's revealing humility and meekness. A conqueror would ride into town on a war horse. Or maybe march in with his armies behind him. But either way, he's coming in with a lot of demonstration of his power, of his ability. Is this in any way a demonstration of the power of Jesus? Of his might? Of his true ability? No, what we're seeing instead is the beauty of Jesus. We're seeing his humility. We're seeing his meekness. We're seeing his lowliness of heart. Because instead of coming in on a war horse, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this day, on Palm Sunday, like a priest or even a merchant would, like a commoner. It was a declaration of peace. Jesus was coming as a declaration of peace. He was there to make peace. He wasn't there to conquer. Jesus revealed himself to his own people as their savior and as one who brings peace. Merrill Tenney said this, he did not come as a conqueror, but as a messenger of peace. He rode on a donkey, not the steed of royalty, but that of a commoner on a business trip. That's so lowly for the king of kings. That is so lowly. We, we don't like to be seen in our 1986 Corolla with the cracked windshield, you know, and, and, and I'm speaking from personal experience, but, but here's the thing. Jesus rode in on a donkey. He rode in, look, this is the king of kings. This is the God of the universe. This is the creator of heaven and earth. And he rode into his kingdom as a commoner bringing peace. And it's hard for us, I think, to comprehend. If you think it's hard for us to comprehend, it should encourage us a little bit. His disciples, look at verse 16, did not understand these things at first. His, his poor disciples, we really connect with these guys, don't we? You know, like a lot of times, like looking back, I'm like, wow, 10 years ago, I had no clue what was going on. Thank you, Lord, for perspective. Thank you for time to look back and actually understand what you were doing. And notice this, his disciples, no clue what's going on at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the, that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. They remember in hindsight. But in the moment, they're not processing very well. They're not processing what's going on. Verse 17 says this, Meanwhile, this is our connection to Lazarus. 
This is our connection for the story that gives us perspective. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It's important that we read details like this in Scripture to connect why this crowd showed up, to understand what they were looking for. John offers his commentary in verse 16, explaining as to why they were clueless and while it, how they were clueless while it was happening. But when Jesus rose from the dead, they remembered, um, undoubtedly bringing them even further joy as they realized what was actually happening and all that he'd done. But, but he also gives us really key information as to what was happening in this time and kind of puts us in the moment. The crowd's response to Jesus was fueled by their excitement about what he'd done for Lazarus. If Jesus could bring a dead man back to life, four days dead, by the way, that's officially dead. Lazarus was like, you know, if, if you know the reference, I mean, he wasn't mostly dead. He was all dead, you know, like, so he, he was all dead and, and Jesus still brought him back to life. What's important about this is that if you, if you see this happen, if you recognize and you're a witness to it and you're like, this guy brought a all dead man back, he has the power to remove Caesar. This is the man who can remove Rome. This is the man who can be that political leader. It gives you the connection point for why they're doing this. Because I know I've talked to people in the past who have been so confused. How did this crowd get so excited, so jacked about Jesus coming into town? And then, you know, a week later, he's crucified. Less than a week later, he's going to be hanging on a cross. How does this happen? Well, it's pretty simple if you think about what they wanted him to do the power that they saw him work and what they wanted him to do and the fact that he did not do what they wanted. As the eyewitnesses testify what Jesus had done, the crowds gather with excitement. They're thinking this is going to be their moment, but this was the revelation of the Messiah that they needed, not the one they wanted. This is the revelation of the Messiah that we had to have, not the one that we would have chosen for ourselves. And this is where the beauty of God, the beauty of Jesus comes out, is he comes as what we need the most. And if we can just strip ourselves of this pride and take a humble attitude, we will see him for who he is, which is exactly what we need, which is why we struggle so much in this life. If we can just look at him in simplicity and humility and accept him as who he is. Jesus is your savior. Jesus came to save you from your sin. Jesus came to give you life. He didn't come to do what you want. What you want is messed up. What I want in my flesh is messed up. He came to do what was needed. The Pharisees despair. Think about this. This could have been a moment for them too. And yet they despair. They had despaired at this. They stated back in chapter 11, verse 48, the beginning of that verse, if we let him go on like this in reference to the raising of Lazarus, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They echo that here as the New Living Translation puts it this way. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone's gone after him. There's nothing we can do now. Everyone's following him. It's obviously an overstatement. I mean, that's, that's obviously, they're overblowing it. Everyone is not going after him. They're not. 
So clearly, you know, and we make these kind of statements. We get this and we get frustrated. We just make these statements. I made a whole bunch of them yesterday when I got really frustrated. Yes, I get frustrated. And I got really frustrated. I made a bunch of statements that weren't true because I was blowing off steam that I had to apologize for. You know, because I was just, you know, nothing's working the way I need it. Uh, we can act like this. We can act like this. We're either the disciples who have no clue what's going on. Hey, look, a bird. Or we're the Pharisees who are blowing everything out of proportion. And I, I hope what we're seeing here, it is comical to some extent, but, but I hope that what we're seeing here in the scriptures is that God is giving us opportunity on a consistent basis to stop being on either side of these extremes and to just sit and to be like that picture that we have of Mary who was sitting and listening to what Jesus was saying. It frustrated the heck out of Martha. But Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus just listening to him. Can we just sit at the feet of Jesus this week and just listen to him? Just receive him as the king that we need. To not blow things out of proportion like the Pharisees. To not be clueless like the disciples. Jesus loves all these people. But to be those who are just observing him, meditating on him, praying to him, enjoying fellowship with him. One commentator said it this way. Speaking of the Pharisees, they're concerned that a few Judeans were being influenced, but their words expressed John's conviction that he was conquering the world. Jesus will overcome. He has overcome. But when he said it in John chapter 16, I have overcome the world. This is the king that we need. This is the one we're looking for. What's sobering? As we close our study, what's sobering is what we read in Luke's account of the triumphal entry. Matthew and Mark uh, transition from this point to Jesus cleansing the temple, which happened. John's account is going to move on to Greeks who are seeking after Jesus. But in Luke's account, it reveals something else that happened here. And I want to share this with everyone as we close our study time. When he drew near, this is Luke 19, verses 41 through 43. When he drew near, speaking of Jesus, and he saw the city, he wept. That's the Hebrew word for sobbed. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This should have been a day of victory as the word of the prophets was fulfilled right before the people's eyes. And rather than understanding the day of their visitation, they're blinded because they're looking for Jesus to be something they want and not something they need. There is forthcoming prophecy that has not been fulfilled in our time. My prayer for us, church, is that we would know the day of our visitation. That we would be looking for Jesus and not for our own version of him, but for who he is. That we would, as he talks about, keep those lamps full of oil and be ready to run out to our groom when he comes. 
Jesus is coming back. And he's not coming back as you wish him to be. He's coming back as who he is. You can receive that or be unprepared. But the day of his visitation is coming. Jesus is not coming back as the lamb to be slain. Jesus is going to return as the lion, as we sang at the opening of our time. He is the lion. He is the king. He's going to return as the conqueror. And here's what we need to do. Prepare our hearts to receive Jesus. Because we recognize what an amazing Savior we have who didn't come the first time to this earth as a conquering general, who came humbly riding on a donkey to bring us peace, offering us peace. With this remembrance of Christ on our hearts, I want to encourage everyone who hears this to take this next week as we go into the time of Easter, as we approach Good Friday, and as we observe and celebrate the crucifixion and death of our Savior, and looking forward to Easter Sunday as we celebrate his resurrection, I want us to spend this time during Holy Week really doing a lot of inward searching, examining our own hearts. Am I ready to receive Jesus? Am I receiving Jesus on a daily basis for who he is? If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, I want you to get a hold of us. We want to talk to you about it. We want to encourage you, we want to pray with you. And if you know that you need to receive Christ as your personal Savior, you need to do it right now. Because Jesus could come back at any time and you need to be prepared to receive him. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart right now. Open the door, ask him into your heart. Ask him to take this sin that you're laden with to cleanse it from you and to bring you the peace that you've been looking for. The peace you have been desiring for so long is found in Christ and in him alone. Let's pray together. Lord, as we just close our time and sing your praise, Jesus, as we just um, want to be those who are, Lord, not confused, but Lord, those who are prepared, we ask God that you would find in us a people who understands who you are, understands the moment of our visitation. And Lord, I do just reach out, Lord, and pray over Lord, all the people that could be watching this right now that don't know you. Lord, I just ask that they would have the boldness to understand that those who are in Christ can take courage. Even though we're going to face persecution, Lord, that they would take courage. And Lord, that they would submit themselves to you Lord, that they would recognize that you are the answer, Lord. You are the peace they've been looking for. And Lord, I just, I thank you, God, that you love us so much to teach us how to be humble by example. 
Lord, if there are some right now who are listening that just feel like they have weakened in their faith, Lord, they know you, but they don't feel like they've been walking with you. Lord, I ask that you give them the encouragement to come to you, to confess. So Lord, that faithfully and justly, you can forgive them, cleanse them from all their unrighteousness. Lord, bless us as we sing this last song together. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together across all our devices, Lord. Thank you for the time that we live in. Thank you for these days, Lord. You're still good. Jesus, you're still the victor.